So what we are doing in this center, we are, first of all, choosing these people, marginalized or people who are or were marginalized, for example, former sex workers or orphans or people with disabilities, of course, also. So we are inviting these kind of people to our center in seven months. They learn everything that enables them to start and run their social ventures. Stick your neck out. The weekly podcast of the Giraffe Heroes Foundation. Ekantari is a plant that grows wild in every backyard of Kerala. A small but very spicy chili with a number of medicinal values. Ekantari is also a symbol for those who have the guts to challenge harmful traditions and the status quo. Those who have fire in their belly and a lot of innovative ideas to make a positive difference. Welcome back to Stick Your Neck Out, the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. I'm your host today, Jean-Pierre Aguiar-Durañona, and I'm talking to Sabrille Tembaken. Hi, Sabrille. Hi. Thanks for accepting my invitation. No, of course. Sabrille and her couple, Paul Cronenberg, are new commended giraffe heroes. Sabrille is blind. In 1998, she started the first school for blind people in Tibet. Afterwards, they founded Braille Without Borders, an organization, and I quote, that empowers blind people to take their life in their own hands. Why was this organization so necessary in Tibet? First of all, an organization to empower blind people is, n is necessary everywhere in the world. Also in Germany. Yes, I right. mean, the problem, in, especially in Germany, I do feel is that many blind people are yeah, quite pampered, so to say. I mean, very, very much in their comfort zone and have difficulties to get out of that. I was lucky. I was in a very, very good school in Marburg, which is close to Frankfurt, which is a gymnasium for blind and partially sighted. And this school was highly empowering. It was not trying to get us where sighted people are, but they were trying to show us a completely different way and to show us that blindness is as good as being sighted, but it's just a different way of living. And this was very convincing for me. And I wanted to do something similar somewhere in this world. I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to get out of Germany and uh, wanted to do some adventure and for whatever reasons i mean my first point was going to africa my french was not good enough so uh, i thought then why not asia and then i became interested in tibet and in tibet there was no school for the blind there was no braille system so so i studied tibetology here in bonn university and i created a braille system first for my own use yeah and later i found out that this was definitely necessary to bring to tibet and to empower people there now why is it also important in tibet other than in germany tibetans do feel that blindness is a sort of punishment for something you have done in your past life they have this this feeling that uh, blindness is probably the worst thing that happens to you and you must have been a murder at least this of course is not an easy thing for blind people to understand 
or to accept or even to be then proud of being blind or understanding or absolutely embracing it. And uh, for me, what was very, very important is not really to create a school. I'm, I'm not so sure if I'm so much for schools. I'm for learning spaces, absolutely. But for me, what was much, much more important is to create a springboard for blind people where blind people can embrace blindness as as a different way of living, just what I learned in Marburg, and where they can jump back into society and say, hey, I'm blind, so what? I can do so many things. Yeah, somehow this this worked out. This plan worked out. How do you cope with that? And most importantly, did the people and the government there, I mean, in, in Tibet, they took you guys seriously with Braille without borders as you started with it? The government was astonishingly open, the Chinese-Tibetan government. So, so see, what I did was I completely surprised them. I, first of all, I, I traveled alone through Tibet, which made a, a big impression already by the people. Oh, they were shocked, yeah, right? They imagine. were speechless. They didn't know what to say, what to think. And then I went, after I had collected a lot of information in the countryside, I went with my cane, With my naivety, I must say, uh, and with my ignorance, I went into the department and um, and I tried in my very bad Chinese and very bad Tibetan <laughs> to explain what I wanted to do. They then answered me in perfect English, which was quite funny and a bit <laughs> yeah. embarrassing. But anyway, what was happening is they asked me just one question. Why are you the one who can do this? Because they told me we had a lot of organizations, big organizations here. They all were not able to do what you want to do, right? So the only thing that came into my mind back then, and I was still very young, right? Um, the only thing that came into my mind was because I'm blind myself. Yes, of course. Yeah? yeah. And that was the point that convinced them to let me try. And they said, okay, um, make sure that you get the funding together <laughs> and uh, we give you the papers. And I said, well, for, for getting funding, I need the papers beforehand. So in a way, I completely overrolled them or how to say I, I overwhelmed them maybe too much or surprised them or shocked them too much so they couldn't really resist right they couldn't really say hey no this is not possible Sabri as you know Commander Giraffes get a profile at the website of the Giraffe Heroes Foundation on your profile it says that you have an incredible intrinsic drive to change the world for the better and help others since you know exactly how it is to be marginalized Which experiences have you made regarding this? I mean, I myself, being a black person, know there are various forms of discrimination, be it structurally, institutionally, private, etc. Yeah, the interesting part is because I was cited before, right? And so I have... I can see the two lives, right? You have never been white before, so you can yeah, actually, yeah. you have only seen the discrimination, right? Yes, yes. I have, I have actually seen how accepted one can be and then suddenly how excluded one can be. Harsh. And and of course, that is quite a contrast, <laughs> right? So if you are first a child, you're growing up with lots of friends, you are accepted, you are fine with the world. You Actually, I must say, if I look back to my first life, I would always call it the first life. It was a life. It was a very speedy life. It was a life with lots of bicycling and lots of visual images. But then also, on the other hand, it was a life in which I 
was not the nicest person on earth. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, uh, I was always in the middle of a big crowd, right? And we were bullying and we were, yeah, we were not really helpful for those who needed our help, right? Now, we had discriminated people who were maybe not as fast as we were or maybe were different than we were. And then I became blind and I was the one who became discriminated. And of course, this was a quite a, this was quite a shock, right? Yeah. So in this way, I know both situations. I know the one that has the privilege right? The sight privilege, not the white privilege, but the sight privilege and the white privilege, of course, but then also the one who is then marginalized. And this change was a very, very drastic one. So from somebody who was always in the middle of everyone or who was always accepted and had many friends, I became very, very lonely and highly discriminated, not only by peers, but also by adults who were basically talking in a baby voice, not taking me seriously at all, overlooking me, not looking at me, trying to avoid talking to me and, and all these kind of things. Or you, of course, since you know German, uh, later even when I became an adult, it very often happened that um, people were said du to me, mm. right? Mm. So right. to my friends, right. they, they said Z and, <laughs> and to me, they said du. And it's a, it's a very, very subtle way of discriminating um, people. Um, they do this with here they, in Germany they, they know, also. They are with, not taking you serious. Exactly. Yeah. And they do it with foreigners as well. Yeah. And this is something that was in the very beginning, it was quite hurtful. And at first I became silent I was not able to speak up. I felt it was my fault. And slowly but steadily, I must say, I got out of this. I gained back my confidence. It was also due to my parents because they, they were not protective. They were not overprotective, which, which I think is very, very important. But they were always telling me, at one point, you will get out of the mess. You, will, you, will, you have the strength to get out of this mess. Right. And what gets me out or what got me out, and I see it with a lot of people who are marginalized, is also creative rage, anger, wut. In German, it's wut, right? It's the creative part of not being all right, not um, understanding that something is really unjust. And this wut becomes a very, very creative impulse for standing up and getting out there and and saying, hey, maybe marginalized is not the worst thing on earth. Maybe actually marginalized is seeing the world from a different perspective, seeing the status quo from a different perspective, understanding the weakness points in society and maybe doing something about it, right? And that gives you a very, very how to say, a very good feeling about the situation that you are in and say, this is my fight now. This is my battle. And, uh, and at that moment also, I understood I had to concentrate on the positive side of, of blindness, the, the positive side of not being distracted, not being completely uh, sidelined through Bollywood and Hollywood, right? And understanding that I had to, to communicate clearly, I had to solve problems, I had to be, become a problem solver, and I had to use my imagination. And this is, of course, something that 
in my opinion, is much or became much, much stronger since I am blind. Mm. You know, we haven't met personally yet. And now we are talking on the phone. But doing my research, I realized that in all your interviews, photos, etc., you don't wear the dark glasses like many blind people do to hide your blind eyes. How did you develop this attitude towards blindness? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I have no problem to be seen as a blind person. A lot of blind people, they try to hide their canes, especially when they're walking with sighted people. When I'm walking with Paul, I always have my cane ready. Why? Because if Paul and I get in a fight and he leaves me somewhere, you know, in a supermarket or anywhere, I can at least find my way back, yeah. right? Um, so I have to be d uh, independent, but then I also have to stand for what I'm standing for and I have not to be ashamed for what I am. And uh, and th this is something that we talked about in the very, very beginning, right? These, these euphemisms or these isms where people try to not say blind, especially in the English language, they try to say visually challenged or um, whatnot. Um, uh, sightless, I heard um, before. Um, visionless, I heard before. I said, well, sorry, but I have a vision. Maybe you don't have a vision, but I have one. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so for me, it is very, very important to not try to avoid the word because it is also a sign that I accept it. And for me, blindness, I must say, for me, blindness is a gift. I think I became a completely different person. And uh, I'm not a believer. I'm not a very religious person, but I'm a very grateful person. And uh, whatever happened to me uh, through this blindness, or whatever happened to me now, I would never be in Kerala. I would have never had the possibility to open a school for the for the blind in Tibet. I would have never had the possibility to be in touch with so many amazing change makers and so many amazing people anywhere around the world if I hadn't been blind. That's for me a, a door opener yeah. for for something very very special. Why should I hide it? Yeah, yeah that's right. After your experience in Tibet, the two of you went to Kerala in the south of India and founded Kantari. Kantari offers a 12-month leadership program for visionaries who have overcome adversity and who are keen to drive ethical social change. Would you mind to explain what exactly you are doing there? Yes. First of all, I would like to mention, because you said uh, the two of you, uh, Paul is my partner and I met him in Tibet. He's from Holland. He is an engineer and an architect. And he was building all the buildings for, for the school in Tibet. Now, in Tibet, we found out through the empowerment center that we have created there, through the springboard, we found out actually what we are doing can be transferred to any other marginalized as well. So the blind in Tibet are really, really marginalized. And we saw that it is possible for them to turn the marginalization into something positive and to say, yes, we are marginalized, so what? We can do a <laughs> lot of things that that sighted people cannot do. And we do understand a lot of things. Now, what, what was very, very important, what we saw is they were able to take a risk. They didn't have anything to lose, right? This is one thing that is so important for a 
social change maker. The other thing is they didn't have to be everybody's darling. They really understand, hey, if I'm standing my ground, if I'm standing strong for my ideas, people can rely on me. Maybe it, it's not favorable for everyone, but at least I can create a change. Because, I mean, the good girls and good boys, they never make a difference, right? But, mm, yeah, but you yeah. need to be an obstacle in a way. And, and this, this is one thing that I like very much about the giraffes. You need to stick your neck out. <laughs> uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, actually, there's no choice to sticking your neck out, right? When you are a giraffe, you have the neck. There is no choice to, to hide away. And this is what they also understood. So they didn't have a problem to be everybody's darling and to please everyone. The other thing is um, what they understood is being ethical, not coming up with excuses or empty promises. Uh, very, very simple, also simple things like being reliable, like being on time, right? I mean, the Chinese, the Han Chinese, they are always on time. The Tibetans, they always love their butter tea and, and have <laughs> difficulties to be on time. But it was a huge, huge advantage advantage for our kids that they were used to be on time or if they had promised to be somewhere that they were there right and then the other thing is we we made a dream factory with them we asked them or empowered them or or encouraged them to dream and really dream big we always say the biggest danger is not to dream big and fail but to dream small and succeed right this is a, a, a quote from michelangelo and we liked that very much and we had for example one little kid who was blind he really wanted to be a taxi driver yeah what to say right and then after a while he said you know what i I understand now I cannot be a taxi driver because I'm blind, but I can start and run a taxi company. And that, <laughs> isn't that much better, right? Yes, um, so, and this is, and then the, the fifth thing is very, very important that they embrace limitations as something positive. So whatever is different with them, with whatever is so-called abnormal with them is not something that is negative, but it's actually giving them a chance to have a completely different and maybe much more interesting and much more rich life. And limitations, in our opinion, is the mother of all inventions, right? If you have limitations, you start to become creative, right? You have to be creative. So when we thought about this, we thought if it works with blind people, why not with anyone else, right? Who is at the edge of society, who is basically in the backyards of society, like the Kantari that grows in the backyards of society. And that's, that's how we started this center, Kantari Center, in Kerala. It's an institute where we invite potential change makers or change makers that are already creating a difference or making a difference, initiators, people who are curious and courageous enough to not being everybody's darling, but risking something, who understand that they have nothing to lose, people who were marginalized and come up with solutions for problems which they have experienced. And this is so, so important. Normally, when organizations go to Asian countries or African countries, what very, very often happens is they tell the people what to do you know, and how to do it. So this is something we absolutely don't want to do. I always compare it with uh, with an experience that I had when I just became blind. So I, I learned how to use my cane and how to be mobile. And very, very often I stood 
just I stood at the at a street and I was listening, right, and maybe waiting for a friend, and suddenly out of nothing, out of the void, a hand came and pushed me over the the street without <laughs> even asking whether I wanted to be on the other side of the street, right? And right in the middle, then I sometimes woke up and or or understood, <laughs> hey, wait a minute, I don't want to be on the other side of the street. And then I said something and suddenly the hand was gone and the person was gone and I was standing in the middle of the street. And this is something that I see everywhere in the world. People are just pushed on the other side of the street without being asked whether they want to go or without being empowered to go by themselves, right? And this is something that I didn't want for myself and I don't feel that nobody has the right to do this. And therefore, we want to encourage people to create change from within. So people who have incredible life stories, people who have, through these life stories, understood that their limitations, that their experiences, that their problems actually bring them to a different level and make them very, very creative and understand the right solutions for these problems. And I must say they have wonderful solutions and much better than any outsider can have thought of. So what we are doing in this center, we are, first of all, choosing these people marginalized or people who are or were marginalized, for example, former sex workers or street children from Nigeria or orphans or people with disabilities, of course, also, or um, people with albinism who are chased by healers in East Africa and chopped up um, and killed for politicians, I don't know whether you have heard about this. Politicians, yeah. they love to run around with a little finger of an albino in their pocket to be elected again. So we are inviting these kind of people to our center. They get a scholarship and then they get a very, very intense, hands-on, practical and um, experiential learning course in seven months. They learn everything that enables them to start and run their social ventures. Some of them have running social ventures already and they want to get a new impulse. Some of them are very successful already, but most of them have never started anything. And due to the fact that some of them have PhDs, but many of them have not even schooling or high school examinations and they have the possibility to learn with everyone together. So we have a learning space. We are not training center as a traditional training center, as you can think of, like with the teacher in front. No, we have catalysts instead of teachers who are catalyzing the people who are pushing them forward and speeding up the process. And we don't call them students, we call them participants. So they are participating in their learning process. And what they learn is to understand their project, the problem they have experienced, to transform concepts. So the concepts that they had through socialization, through religion, through whatnot, right? They learn how to transform these concepts and to come up with very, very creative ideas and very suitable ideas because these ideas are from them and they are coming from within. Then they learn, of course, how to communicate these ideas. So they learn how to do speeches, how to stand on a stage, how to fire up an audience. And a lot of them are very, very 
very like to become uh, or they they are um, invited to conferences and uh, being moderators and they learn how to plan and um, manage projects manage teams build buildings um, uh, buy land i mean very very simple things also yeah, or yeah. not so simple things i don't know branding of their organization simple, right? I mean... <laughs> huh? pardon me it's, it's not that, that simple. No, no, it's, it's not that simple. Stuff, but yeah. but of course, they basically what what they have is a full backpack of whatever they need to know, and they jump back into their society. Of course, they become different people when they come back, much more confident, much more uh, self assured. And then they start their projects and we mentor this process, the start of the project. And once they have started, they get a graduation certificate from, from us. So the, the graduation is actually in their own country. And the great thing is that they are coming with so many different ideas, problems, beneficiary groups they want to help or they want to do something with and what is very very nice is that they fuse their ideas you know so suddenly yeah, the street awesome. children project becomes an environmental project as well so to make legos green again or something like mm. that right <laughs> so so it's yeah. it's a very very intense hyper boiling pot of different cultures and different um yeah different people yeah, that sounds great. Why do you relate the Cantari plant as the symbol of a new type of leader? I mean, I remember I was I was in Kerala a couple of years ago, and I I've never heard the the word before. But I, it, it 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 sounds like it's a really important symbol. Also, there. have you eaten Kerala food? Yes. Yes. Then you must have tasted at one point. So whenever there's something really hot, yeah. they put Cantari in it. Okay, so, that's always exactly. So so Cantari is a chili. Right, is a very small chili that grows wild in the backyards of Kerala. And it's not only small and very, very spicy, but it is also medicinal. And that's actually exactly the right symbol. So it's fiery. It symbolizes a person with fire in the belly. And spice, um, for us, spice is also the guts to challenge the status quo. You know, there's always a little bit of a pain involved yes, right definitely. but yeah. it's a healthy pain and it and without pain changes are not possible right also a cantari is not liked by everyone i must say and still it is healthy it lowers the blood pressure it uh, it <laughs> is making you really awake mm. uh, much better than a coffee can do and the fact that it grows wild you cannot really plant it so it's it's planted by birds and you can actually find it wild in the in the sides of you know on the streets or even in the backyards which yeah wherever birds leave their droppings uh, you can find the kantari and uh, but you cannot really control it and this is what exactly what i see these kantari change made it's a symbol just the giraffe is a symbol as well yeah yeah it's a nice symbol i mean i'm talking about symbols while doing research i've noticed that you call the trainees at kantari visionaries why this terminus and i would love to hear from you maybe a couple of examples of how successful these students have been so visionaries because they come with a vision and they have the trust that one day in the future the world can also look different yeah for example let's say a nigerian uh, woman and tony 
she was in Kantari in 2017. She actually, uh, she was thrown out of her family or by her mother, she was thrown out. And she lived on a dump site for quite a long time. And she felt actually miserable and, and felt that she was not able to finish her schooling and uh, go to university. She's highly intelligent, but she just didn't have the possibilities because she was neglected by her family. In the dump site already, she started to to change or to turn trash into beautiful objects together with people who were also there in the dump site. And then she came to us and together with us, she did her concept transformation. We call it also the washing machine, right? So they came, she came with the idea, oh, I make business with trash, right? So then we start the washing machine that goes through lots of questioning and, of course, through the interaction with the other participants, but then also through the catalysts and through some tools that we give to transform concepts, to really question your governing principles, not only the concrete details, but also the governing principles, right, of your project. And her project turned into something similar on one hand but something completely different also yes, so so yeah. she has now she is running a community a rural community uh, with the tagline rural is cool the problem in nigeria <laughs> apparently is that uh, people look down on rural people that they don't accept them um, she found out that one community has a lot of bamboo, so a lot of resources, a lot of possibilities, but they never saw it as a resource. They always saw it, hey, what shall we do with all this bamboo? We, we want to get rid of it. For them, it was like a, like a herb that like had... a problem. Yeah, exactly, like a problem, like a pest almost, right? And uh, she created a bamboo community out of this rural community. And now everything, they, they are learning everything about bamboo. Bamboo furniture, bamboo houses. They built houses with bamboo. They uh, want to build now a, a three-story house with bamboo. Uh, they are uh, making jewelry, of course, then dishes. They want to make bamboo silk. They want to make white canes for blind people in bamboo. And they, uh, everything. <laughs> so so in, in the end, they also want to show how you can eat bamboo, bamboo shoots, right? And, and how important or how healthy it is. So, and this was a dream that she had in Kantari, that she developed in Kantari, and now it's yeah three years down the road, and it's already on the way. Are you, are you keeping in touch with them? Are you following? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, very closely. We have now 226 graduates, and yeah, and with most of them, also with the ones who have not started, of course, there are also some who have not started, 70%, around 70%, between 60 and 70% are starting, and they're getting very successful. And that is, of course, very, very important. But we also are keeping in touch with the ones who have not started and who, for whatever reason, but everybody is better off after the mm. Kantari course. But how do you manage to organize and keep track of every single of these projects? Is this possible at all? It is possible. Yes, still it is possible. Of course, we have only 25 people per year. And since we are so closely together, we are basically living with them together through seven months, right? On a rather small campus. It doesn't feel so small because we have a lot of lake around it as well. And, and you can swim and go boating and stuff like that. So it's actually very much fun. We, Of course, we have also a team with catalysts and they are sometimes calling them or they are calling us. Actually, now, for example, in Nigeria or in Cameroon, they have crisis situations. 
relations in Cameroon. They have a, a civil war um, that is going on in Nigeria. The, uh, since two weeks, there's a big crisis with the uh, police. Of course, we are getting every time there is something and you have... In Asia, in Thailand, there is uh, right now a big protest going on and one of our Kantaris is at the head of a protest group. Mm. And on top of all of that, is you have Corona. That is, uh, on top of all of that helping. is Corona, exactly. So, yeah. uh, And people are hungry. <laughs> or, mm. um, uh, and uh, But I must say, what, what I really, really like, and this is make, giving me so much energy to go on, the Corona didn't stop them in their actions. Most of them, they just reoriented their actions and, and they did something completely new. Or they changed or modified their work. And they understood in corona times or in times of crisis, social change makers are actually the ones that are really important. Yeah, You have been working in Asia for a while now. What does not work or what kind of obstacles do you confront frequently? Yeah, one, one obstacle, I, I must say, is the fact that we are always seeing how NGOs are treated by, for example, by governments all over the world, right? There is a tendency right now um, from governments all over the world that they um, are very suspicious of NGOs. And I ask myself, why? I mean, there are, of course, <laughs> there, there must be one or two or a few that are maybe abusing the situation that they are NGOs. However, it's so much more difficult to abuse the situations to be a non-for-profit than being a for, a for profit. And the fact that actually these uh, most of these NGOs are trying to save democracies, trying to save the fact that there are human rights, puts them into a very, very difficult position. And this is something that Yeah, that is very, how to say, very disturbing sometimes to, to observe this. And of course, this is not only in India, it's not only in, in Asia as a whole. I think in India, we are pretty fine, in, especially in Kerala. Kerala is a, is a very, yeah. very different yeah. climate towards NGOs. And of course, we are an institute. Uh, so for us, it doesn't really count. But to, to see, for example, the NGOs in Kerala and to see NGOs in other states... I, I really must say I'm I'm admiring their persistency and their their courage to go through. For us, it's very very important that the Kantaris show how ethical they are, how reliable they are, but also how strong they are to fight for the right thing and to fight for it in a non-violent and non-aggressive way, but still in a strong way and, and stand for what they are believing in. Dear listeners, my guest today, Sabrija Tembeken, has been named as one of the leaders of tomorrow by the World Economic Forum. Sabrija, you had been also featured in the Oprah Winfrey show. I mean, you are a woman who gives new meaning to activism and inspiration. I'm getting the vibe also today. <laughs> What are the key skill sets that a social change maker or a problem solver must possess? I think what is very important is that people stop being too interested in themselves and be more interested in the changes in the world and the possibilities in the world. Also, that people stop whining about problems, but looking for solutions, understanding the problems, embracing the limitations, but then looking for the solutions. I think what is also important is persistency to, to go for it, to not <laughs> give up easily, to even when people 
again and again say, hey, this is too big for you. This is too too much of a dream for you. This is too much of a bite for you. Yeah, that you just say, hey, just bite into a contari and you will see that a small chili can make a huge difference, <laughs> right? So yeah. this is important is actually not to just go for the conventional way, but also try the difficult paths and try to yeah go paths that maybe were never worked before. Savriya, you single-handedly wrote the Braille script for Tibetan language. You were nominated 2005 for the Nobel Prize for your dedication to empower people with disabilities. Your experience, how should one go about changing mindsets? Key but challenging part of any social change? One thing that I feel is very, very important is that people are not thinking about becoming famous or any other external issues or extrinsic issues. I think it's very, very important. Whatever you do has to be from within, from intrinsic interest. That means I'm never interested in doing something so that I get an award. I'm always interested to create something different or to make a difference, right? Uh, and it's not about what what people see in me, but it's it's about what I am interested in doing or what um, pinches me. Yeah, it's about feelings. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's about the inner feeling or the inner drive to change something. And it's not an external drive. And I think this is a very, very important. I didn't create a Braille system to be uh, or to get a pat on my back, right? That's never a good um, how to say that's never a good uh, reason. I heard people who said, well, I'm, I want to do a film and I want to get awards with this film. In my opinion, first concentrate on the film and concentrate on what you really want to do with this film. And also, if there is the praise, don't stop there. Don't jump, uh, don't sit down and say, oh, yes, now <laughs> I made it, right? I think it's so important not to get too much notice of it, but to just go on and find a next goal in life. Because a lot of people are getting too convenient with success stories on the way so that they stop at a certain point. And I know a lot of people who had a lot of success before they become very depressed uh, after a while because they feel, mm, what else is there in life? Yeah, they are empty. Yeah. Mm. Sabria, it's really great talking to you since the Giraffe Feeders Foundation is looking for people who stick their neck out just as you did. But at the same time with Kantari, you enable others to do the same. So it's really, really a huge impact you have and it sounds like a really impressive project you created there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for being part and for doing what you're doing. You are probably a role model for many people. And at the same time, whenever things and the future look so dark, especially right now, everybody's talking about Corona, the numbers, the infection, the next lockdown. Hearing your story really gives us hope and is inspiring. And you, dear listener, Check out the Cantari. Maybe there is a project near you that will be happy to have your support. Is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah, maybe you can just add the website. Yeah, www.cantari is written with a K-A-N-T-H-A-R-I uh, dot O-R-G. Thank you, Savidia, for your time. Thank you. That's it for today. You were listening to Stick Your Neck Out, the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. I am Jean-Pierre Aguiar Durañona. You'll find the Giraffe Hero stories every Tuesday on Spotify, iTunes, our homepage, and every other place where you hear your podcasts. 
But you know what? Subscribe the podcast so you don't have to look out for us. We'll be coming to you. We are proud to share inspirational stories from remarkable individuals every week. Stories that come from many different places. And of course, you can tell us your stories too. I mean, if you like to tell us about your frontline hero, visit us at giraffe-heroes.eu. Join us also on our social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Join us again next week. Stick your neck out. The weekly podcast of the Giraffe Heroes Foundation.